Good morning. My name is Spencer, and I am one of the pastors here. So we are in the final two weeks of walking through the book of Malachi, and we're also in our final weeks of our Give series. So every year, if you're new here, we do a Give series where we pause to remember uh, really the gift of Jesus and what it means to be in relationship with him. Uh, We get so caught up in this season and really the materialism that gets attached to Christmas. And every year we take a moment to reset and and remember who this is about and what he calls us to as being people that do not worship gifts or don't worship money or don't worship anything other than Christ and esteem him as as wonderful and great. And we do that through a give project, which you'll hear more about um, as we close out today. But uh, we're going to continue to walk through the book of Malachi, and we are in chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, so you can follow along there. You can also follow along your blue Bible uh, that's all around you. The page should be on the screen, 468, if I can read correctly from a distance. But you can follow along as we walk through the text together. Uh, we are in the Christmas season, and uh, that means that there are a lot of things that are happening. One of them is uh, Hallmark movies. So, yeah, some of you are excited. Uh, 90-minute, easy, digestible plots that are effortless, right? Netflix has gotten in the game. Like, there, you know, there's a story for you. You know, the, the woman who is in the city and has the high-powered career, but she goes to the countryside for Christmas and meets the guy, and all of a sudden she has to choose between her career and the man in the countryside, and every time she chooses the countryside and the wonderful life, you know what I'm talking about. There's these revolving plots that happen that we're all so very used to, There's one that happens quite a bit as well, and it's the story of a a dad who really is all in on his career. He's traveling all the time. He's working really hard, but he's not present at home. And at Christmas time, he believes that he can buy his children's affection by buying them all the Christmas gifts in the world. Like this plot shows up in, you know, 90-minute movies. It shows up all over the place. It happens in real life as well. And everyone who understands that story universally responds the same way. Dad, he doesn't want the gifts. He wants you. (laughs) He, He doesn't want the Christmas that you can provide. He wants you. He wants to go out back and throw the ball. He wants to have time with you. If you would just refocus and recenter your life in, in a way that would see that your children are valuable and the little time that you have with them. Like we know that story. And all of us are on the same page and saying, dude, slow down. The gifts don't matter. It's what you, it's you are what matters. And yet, we don't apply that same logic to God the Father. We just don't. We don't see that actually having a relationship with God the Father and being with him is actually good. That's where goodness is found. It's not in the gifts that he can provide. It's not in the life that he can provide. It's not in the things that we want in this world. It's actually found in him, and we don't apply that same logic. We so deeply understand we're watching a movie to who our God is, and we get so wrapped up, and especially in a season like this, and what God can do for us in defining that as goodness. Now, we're not alone. The Jewish people, as we're going to see today, we're also in the same boat, confusing what is the goodness of God, how is that displayed, and really believing that that's bound up in the things that he can do for his people. So we're going to see that. We're going to see how that applies to us as we walk through another dispute that God has with his people in the book of Malachi. So let me pray, and then we'll walk through this together. Heavenly Father, I I pray that you would help us be present this morning, that we might 
remember who you are, that we might even, some of us, discover who you are, that we might see you as wonderful and good and worthy of our worship, not because of what you can do for us, but because who you are. And God, I pray that you'd help us be present this morning to hear that and that we would not just be hearers of the word, but we would be doers of the word. And we walk this out in faith and in repentance and in worship and delighting in who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so starting off in verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So if you've been walking with us in the book of Malachi, one of the things that you have seen over and over again in these disputes, because each one of these sections of Malachi is a dispute that God has with his people And you see this, God says, this is what you've done. Here's the accusation. Here's what you've said. Here's what you've done. The people are like, no, not us. How have we done this? And that's what's happening here. Your words have been hard against me. And they say, well, how? How have we spoken against you? We wouldn't know, never. It's like, no, you've spoken hardly. Another version will say harshly. Another version uh, will say arrogantly. It's all capturing the same idea. You've spoken arrogantly, harshly, hard words against the Lord. And in verse 14, we see this harshness and really what's happening in this charge. It says, what profit is there in keeping his charge? His charge. The NIV, I'm going to put the NIV, which is another version of this, up there. Because I want us to see what's happening here. It says, you have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? So this is a little bit different than what we've read before where they're complaining or lamenting before God. They're talking amongst themselves. This we, his language, what God is describing is conversations that are happening amongst the people of God. So what's happening is the people are complaining against the Lord together, which is what happens. You know, people who are disgruntled seem to find each other. If you've ever worked a job, <laughs> if you've ever been in an office or worked in a shop or wherever, like the most disgruntled people just find each other and they complain about their boss, they complain about their work, or they complain about fill in the blank. And that's what's happened with the people of God is they've, they've, some people have been finding each other to complain together against God. So, what are they complaining about? What's the content of their beef with God? It starts in verse 14. It says, you have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So, they're saying, what is the point in worshiping God? What profit is there? What gain is there? In worshiping God, it's not going well for us. What's the point of worshiping God? This language of mourning is, is, is the type of lament worship they would bring before God. 
What's the point in worshiping God? It's not, it's not giving us any gain that we can really see, that we can really feel, that we can really grasp. And we saw a little bit of this earlier when the, uh, earlier with the dispute with the people of God when they were bringing their sacrifices before the Lord. They were bringing uh, bad sacrifices, disobeying the law, bringing blind animals and all types of animals that should not have been sacrificed, going through the motions of worship. And now they're just complaining about even going through the motions of worship. What is the point? What is the profit? What is the gain in worshiping God? And it becomes a really self-centered, self-interested approach to the Lord, that God has not done me any good, so what's the point in even serving him? What's the point in even going to the temple and offering worships? What's the, what's the point of even going to the synagogue and hearing the rabbi preach? Like, what is the point? What is the prophet? And they continue this complaint. In verse 15, it says, And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So this is similar to what we've read earlier in Malachi. They are mad that those who are not of the people of God, that don't worship God, are prospering. So the Persians still rule over them at this point in history, and they're mad about that. When they come back to the promised land, the Edomites, their sworn enemies, are take, have taken over parts of the promised land, and they're mad about that. And those people that don't worship God, they seem to be doing well, and we aren't. Are you going to show up for us, oh God? Because we're not prospering, and they are, and they're not being punished, and they're comparing themselves to the people that are around them, which, as I told my daughter last night, is a miserable existence. It's a miserable existence to compare yourselves to others. In childhood, it's miserable, but it's also miserable as, a, as an adult to consistently compare yourself to others. One of the things that we're having to deal with with our oldest, she's in the third grade, and, and this started to happen, but she's got friends in her class that have phones, and that's going to continue to happen. And she's already kind of wondered, wait a second, why don't I have a phone? And those conversations are going to continue to ramp up. And they're going to be more and more like, hey, wait, I, why don't I have a phone? My friends have a phone. Why don't I have a phone? And the comparisons are going to continue in that direction. And one of the things that's going to be difficult for her that we're going to have to have conversations with over and over again is to say, listen, I'm not their parents. I'm yours. You belong to me. And we have made a decision that it's going to be a, a while before you get a phone, especially a smartphone, because we have basically a decade-long case study on what that does to young girls. So, no, we're, you're not going to have a smartphone for a very long time. And what she's going to, inevitably what's going to happen in her soul because she's a human is, is that's not good. You're, you're denying goodness. And, and what she doesn't see is, no, we, we aren't. We're actually giving you goodness by not giving you this device that can warp you. No. But we do this. It's so innate to who we are to compare ourselves to others, to say, oh, no, like I, what are you holding back from me, oh, Lord, that the others have? That is good. Now, that complaint needs some context for when that's being said in history. I mean, that, that matters for any statement that's made in history. I can make the statement right now that Germany is dominating influence in Europe. I mean, they are a dominating influence in Europe, and they are because they're the most powerful economy in the EU. If I said that in 1940, that's different. 
That's a whole different ballgame. So context, based on generational differences and time, matters. So when is this statement, when is this complaint that they are saying being said, and why does that matter? So the complaint they're making against God here is a few generations after the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah. Malachi is, one of the, it is the final book of the Old Testament. And it's believed that it happens just a few generations right after the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, what you will see when the people return from exile to the promised land is that there's this renewed fervor and love for God. There's this renewed worship for God as they're rebuilding the temple and as they're rebuilding the walls and as they're uh, reading the, the law and rediscovering the covenant. There's this renewed fervor for God. And with that renewed fervor for God is this expectation that things are going to get better. And then it kind of doesn't by their standards. They don't still rule over their land. Things aren't seeming to be all that much better. And we, we, we saw even last week uh, that they aren't, well, one of the things that Chet walked us through last week in the last uh, dispute that God has with his people is that they're not actually giving to, uh, giving their tithes to the Lord. They're holding back from the Lord. And part of that, when you can look into the context, is that they probably don't have as much. It's easy to, to, to give a tenth when you are prosperous, a little bit harder when you are not. So things aren't going well as they expected, and the Edomites, their enemies, are ruling over parts of their land. They're just things aren't going like they want it to be. And they're saying, well, what's the profit of following God? What's the point in worshiping God? Because it's just not getting better. Now, I think that context is important for us in the Western American church. Because I believe that we have similar complaints. Because what happens with us is that many of us will place our faith in Jesus, get baptized. Or maybe we'll go through a season of rediscovery of God and loving his word and passionate. Maybe you get married and you're like, I want to actually take faith seriously as a family or you start to have a kid you start to go I want to take God seriously we have these mountaintop experiences where we're starting to have a fervor and a love for God and what happens is is that we believe the false narrative that if I'm just following God and I'm doing what I'm supposed to then things are just going to get better and then life hits you in the face repeatedly over and over again death Loss, betrayal, debt, joblessness, the works. And what happens when you get hit over and over again is you start to question, is God good? Is he? Because I'm just, I'm getting destroyed left and right. And I, I, is he good? Now, the reason I think that question seeps in very easily, I think there's, there's a few different threads f- for that. I think part of that is, is that the American prosperity gospel is so rampant in Western American church. And we like to think of that as just the, you know, the Creflo dollars of the world who are buying jets. Those are the worst versions of it. But it's way more than that. It's this consistent message that shows up of 
it'll be, you, God, you follow God, you'll be healthy, you'll be good, you'll be fine. Your life will be good. Profit gain, it's all over Instagram, it's all over YouTube, it's all over, just it, it, it fuses its way to where the goodness of God ultimately is what he can do for you. If you place your faith in Jesus, watch him work. Won't, won't he? Won't he work? I mean, just over and over and over and over again. It seeps its way in all different places. I think that's part of the problem. I think, I think also part of the problem is, is that we just have this understanding that goodness is found in the things. Goodness is found in the substance, material substance. There's this material idea of just goodness is these things. And therefore, if God is good, he must display his goodness. But these things, if he just gives me these things, then he ultimately is good. I think also we just, very basically, we lack a very biblical theology of suffering. Uh, the, the, the New Testament, you cannot read the New Testament without understanding that there is a baseline th- theolog- theological, like you, you are going to suffer, and ultimately that is for your good. That if you are called in Christ as a Christian, you will suffer. And it's actually seen as something that is good for us. I mean, James 1 says, count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. When. Really important word. Meaning, you are going to meet trials. You are going to suffer. And he's trying to help them count it as a joy because ultimately that suffering is going to produce steadfastness. And as Romans says, it'll have its full effect. It'll be, I mean, it's just, it's just, I think we lack this. And we're surrounded by so many bad ideas and bad philosophies of the day, bad theology, bad preaching, dumb Instagram, dumb TikTok, I mean, just, we're surrounded by so many ridiculous, detached from the Bible ideas. And I love what Eugene Peterson once said. He said, all the water and all the oceans cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside. That all the water and all the oceans cannot sink a ship unless it gets inside. So yes, we are certainly surrounded by so many bad ideas, so many bad philosophies, so many bad theologies, so many bad streams. But the reality is, is that we're, we still have the ability to believe what is true. We have his word. We have the Holy Spirit. That don't have to get inside the boat. That don't have to get in. We are responsible, ultimately, for discernment and filtering out all of that so we actually believe what is true. And some of that means you've got to realize that you might have some metaphorical people that are around that are complaining and giving you bad ideas. Bad company, as First Corinthians says, ruins good morals. So I don't know what that is for you. If that's seeping into your soul, you might need to source where that is and who that's coming from. Maybe it's people that you follow. Maybe it's things that you have heard. Maybe it's fill in the blank. But there's a group of people in the promised land that are just complaining. And they're complaining against God because they believe what is not true. The goodness is found in what God can do for us in this life, mostly materially. 
but that's not the only people in the promised land. When you get to verse 16, you see that. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. So there still are people who fear the Lord, who love him, who realize that goodness is found in him, that delight in him for who he is and not for what he can do in prospering this life now. There's still people that love God and that worship him and that fear him, and they're speaking together. And this is what God says. And some of this is in the time of Malachi, and some of this is we're going to see is forward-looking. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasure possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So we get this picture of people who in the midst of their suffering are fearing God. And I want to take a look at some of that forward-looking language that is for the people of God who persevere in faith. So that first part, it says, the Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Those who fear the Lord are his. They belong to him. So much so that their name is written in a book of remembrance, which is something that we see from the Old Testament into the New. Right? When we were walking through the book of Exodus in the last year, we saw that Moses, when he's pleading on behalf of the people, he says in Exodus 32, But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. There's this idea of that those who remain faithful, they're written and recorded in some book of remembrance. The book of Revelation completes this theme at the end of the story. In Revelation uh, chapter 3, it says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation chapter 20 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's this idea throughout the scriptures that, that those who are faithful, those who trust God, those who persevere, they're written in a, a, a book of remembrance, a book of life. There's a recording that is taken of them. Now, for their time, that makes a lot more visual sense for them because they were very used to at the time, kings kept a record. So kings at the time, both Jewish and non-Jewish kings, they kept a record of who did what in the kingdom that was good, who did what in the kingdom that was bad. They kept a record of all of this. So it's very picturesque for them that the God of the universe, the king of all things, keeps a record and it keeps an account of who is faithful. So he says, God, I will remember. I have a book of remembrance, and you'll be written in. And then I want us to see what he has to say about those in the book of remembrance. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. 
So God says a couple of things. He says, those who fear me, those who are in this book of remembrance, they are my treasured possession. Dude, where is treasured possession? That God holds his people dear to him. He treasures them. He keeps them safe. Like if I, if this week in our office is next door, if Chet Phillips started a fire, because I don't even know what he's doing back there sometimes. If he started a fire and the building was going to burn down and I had to get some stuff out of my office, I'd choose the most treasured possessions. And it, it would be very quick. Because on my bookshelf, there's a pocket Bible. It's an old KJV pocket Bible. It was my grandparents' pocket Bible. And that's a treasured possession. I'd grab that. And above that is I have a, I have a signed copy of one of Wendell Berry's limited edition poetry books, which for a very limited amount of people, that's a big deal. But it's, <laughs> it's one of the best authors of the last century. He, I got him to sign it at a book fair. I'd grab that. I might even grab, there's, at the end of the bookshelf, there's a picture. It's of Chet, but it's of Chet looking at himself. So like one day, um, one day I was at his office and he had this, uh, he was looking at his computer, but his computer has two screens and one of them just had a screensaver, which was a, his profile picture on our website. And he's looking at it. So I snapped the picture because it looks like he's fawning over himself. <laughs> and I sent it to him. It was a big kind of inside joke. And then all of a sudden he like, before he went on sabbatical, like print it off and put it in a frame just you know because we listen we make jokes about each other all the time from the pulpit because we're fun and we like to have fun but we are close we're good friends and he knew he was gonna be gone for eight weeks so he put that picture up there for me to remember him and it's just like it's a good inside joke it stays up there so I probably wouldn't keep that I if I'm grabbing things maybe if I have the time but definitely the other two objects I'm grabbing those and the reason why I'm grabbing those objects is because they're dear to me they're treasured and I want to keep them safe. And God, he says, I'm, you're, you're mine. You're my treasured possession. Just think about that. If you're in Christ, God treasures you. He treasures you. And he will ultimately keep you near to him. I love that language. That we're a treasured possession. And he goes on. And he says, and I will spare them like a man spares his son who serves him. And this is the language of the father who loves his son. A father who loves his son. And I mean, not just giving, trying to buy his affection at Christmas, but just absolutely loves his boy. And if you're a parent, you get this. You understand what it means to love your children. And that you want to spare them suffering. You want to spare them. Like that, that's, like I, right now, we're, so I, I read a book called Coddling of the American Mind years ago, and I'm very convinced by the arguments in it. Not, they're not Christians, but very convinced of the arguments in it. One of the things they're critiquing is helicopter parenting. So we're trying to grow in our family to not be the helicopter parents. So my oldest is in the third grade, and we're trying to allow her to have more free play in our neighborhood where we can't see her, but that's very hard because I've seen a lot of Dateline, and it's just hard. <laughs> Well, for Christmas, don't, don't tell her, but we're getting her a, a, a Garmin smartwatch that allows her to message us, send out a, a, an SOS signal if she's in trouble, but has GPS tracking. So I feel a little more comfortable, less helicoptery, sending her out in the neighborhood to play with kids where I can't see her because it's good for her ultimately to have this 
free play that is going to be good for her to make her a better adult. Now, the reason why that's hard for me and my wife is because we don't want her to get hurt. We want to spare her that. Like, we don't want our children to be hurt. We want our children to be okay. And that's something that's so distinct to parents. We love our children. And God says, I, I'm going to spare them like a man spares his son who serves him. Like, I, I'm going to, like, like, a, like a God who loves his child, that doesn't want his child to suffer. That's how I see this people who fear me, who love me. And in the days ahead, you will be my, you're my treasured possession, and I will spare you. And when that happens, everyone will see the distinction between those who trust in Christ and fear him and the wicked who reject him and ultimately complain about him because they've misunderstood the goodness of God. Now, that question lingers of, okay, well, when? God's prophesying this. When? When is that going to happen? And this side of the cross, we know exactly when that was going to happen. So I have passages like Romans 8, which makes Malachi 3.17 come to life. Romans 8 says, He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the good news of the gospel is that God loves his people so much that he did not spare his only begotten son. That he had his son crushed on a cross to absorb the wrath for our sin that we deserve so that we might be spared. So that we might become his treasure possession. And so the judgment might, might not fall upon us, but it might fall upon Christ. So Malachi is pointing forward to that day when Jesus is not spared, but those who trust in him are. And as Romans says, as Romans says, how will he not graciously give us all things that if we're spared this judgment and more than that, we're graciously given all things. What are the all things? And it's not material in this life. It's Christ in life with him. So as Malachi, the, the complaint is, what is the profit of keeping his charge? What's the profit? What's the gain? What do I get? You get everything. You get everything that ultimately matters. You gain him in life with him forever. You get the fruit of his righteousness credited to our account. You get to behold his face in eternity. You gain everything that ultimately matters. So what is it worth? What's the profit? It's worth everything. As Paul so succinctly puts in Philippians 3 when he argues, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for him, the loss was reputation. The loss was he suffered greatly physically. He suffered in hunger. He suffered, in, he suffered in shipwrecks. He suffered everything. As I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So all the things that you might cling to in this world and say, that's good. He says, no, it's garbage. It's rubbish. No, 
Where am I? In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. And the very things in this life that we're so tempted to believe that are ultimately good, it's nothing. It's fleeting. It doesn't last. It's not worth putting your hope in. The difference between those that do not know God and those who do is not bound up in the things that they have in this life. It's bound up in who they ultimately worship. And we have Christ, and he's worth everything. He's worth all the loss that you might suffer in this world. He's worthy of it. And he's better, as we say every week, he's better than everything else. So that means that we, we have to stop measuring the goodness of God and the things that we can get here and now. And all the different ways that we struggle with God because we are frustrated because of what he does not give us, it means that we have to submit that in repentance before the Lord and only believe that he is good, regardless of anything that's added in this life. Now, as we do give, we get to do that every year as a reminder because every year around this time we talk about this. We talk about how there are things that vie for our attention and our affection. There's so many things that you can buy now on Amazon. There's so many things you can level up to in life. The next house, the next truck, the next whatever it is that you desire. And when we don't get it, we get frustrated, we get discontent. And maybe it's not even, maybe it's not even a big truck. Maybe it's just the simple things like, I don't want to be in pain anymore. I want relationally things to go well for me. I want my marriage to go well for me. I want friendships to go well for me. I want my job to go well for me. There's so many things that we put value in in this life. And when those are taken from us is when we start to shake our fist. And at least it get every year, we get to address one of the big ones, which is materialism. It is money. It is the things that we want to worship and lay our lives down for. So we close out. We're going to worship, and then Isaac's going to come up here. He's going to explain the next phase of our give project we're excited about. And we're going to get an opportunity to actually in the coming weeks, display that at least we don't love the things of this world so much so that we might give up a chunk of change, a bit of our budget, maybe even a bit of our regular giving so that we might submit our finances to the Lord and not love the things of this world that we so, if we're honest, deeply love. But even more than that, the hope would be is that we would not be like those who complained amongst the people of God who questioned God's goodness because he did not deliver in the ways that they wanted him to. But we just be like the boy who gets his dad and just says, I want him. I don't want the things you can give me. I just want you. And we'd be a people that whatever it is in this life that, that we put value in, we just put it away and say, no, I got you. And if I got you, I'm good. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us submit to what is difficult teaching. Help me submit to what is difficult teaching from your word.
There's so many things my heart strives to love above you. But you're more beautiful. You're more wonderful. You're more satisfying. And I pray that we believe that. I pray that we live like that's true, that if there's anyone here that hasn't actually fully done that for the first time ever, they haven't actually believed that you're ultimately better, they would actually believe that. They would have faith, that you would give them faith to believe that you are better, that goodness is found in you. And for the rest of us who are sinners trying to rid ourselves of seeking the pleasures of this life, may you help us in repentance and in worship Submit these things to you so that we might see you as good. In Jesus' name, amen.